Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. The very best of last week's rugby coaching webinars and podcasts, reviewed by host Phil Flewellyn and his special guests. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for season two as we continue to delve into the world of sports coaching. My guests will be presenting their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. As always, I'm delighted to have another two excellent individuals join me this week. So, gents, if you'd like to introduce yourselves and tell us your current role. Hi, so I'm Rich Hudson. I'm Managing Director of Buckinghamshire Cricket. Um, so interested in all things sort of coaching and performance. Um, so whilst you know just a fan of rugby, uh, always keen to sort of learn from other sports and other coaches. So it's great to join you today, Phil. Yeah, my name is uh, Ian McClurg. I'm actually located in Lancaster, Ontario, Canada. I run a soccer training program in that location and focus on the individual development of players. Fantastic, gents. Uh, thank you for coming on. Much appreciated. I'm continuing to get outside my rugby bubble, as I uh, described it last week. So, um, yeah, brilliant to kind of branch out a little bit and, and talk kind of coaching in other sports and hopefully for, for me to learn an awful lot about what you guys do and also just uh, explore coaching in some different environments, which is great. So uh, before we get started, just a reminder for those listening to check out the blurb for links to all the content we discuss and recommendations to other high quality podcasts. So, Rich, you're kicking us off. Uh, shameless self-promotion here but we're all about that so uh, fire away and uh, let us know what we're talking about. Well thanks very much for the opportunity Phil and, and such a, uh, a nice lead-in so um, well uh, my second book's about to be published so I've, um, I've got a psychology background but, um, and a sports psychology background and I guess you know over the time you learn different things and things you like and things you don't like and um, a couple of years ago I wrote a book of, um, called Pressure Myths which I um, it was kind of everything that I felt was that we should be messages that I wanted the players that I work with to know. And then when you write enough, you might as well share it with other people. And I guess you know, two and a half years on, uh, this is kind of the, the evolution of that. So, um, you know, about the inner game of performance and, and what I feel that people need to understand to realise their potential. And obviously potential is an infinite thing. So you can't really put a, a name and number on it. But what helps people to be the very best they can be and I, I've sort of um, called the book perform beyond pressure so how do we go beyond what gets in our way and I think there's there's three areas that you need to understand and that's about knowing yourself understanding the game and playing your game and obviously within a book that's going to cover a fair amount of ground around those, those sections but I guess some of the overriding themes are around your sense of identity and how that influences performance so trying to draw people to, um, or draw people away from the fact that they're not their self-image. Um, but how much time do we spend trying to live up to the ideas in our minds and trying to protect our sense of self, which when you reflect on it, tends to get in our way far more than it helps us. So what does it truly mean to, um, to be yourself, um, both as a person, but in performance environment? Um, it talks about how situations are inherently neutral so there are no high pressure situations. There are just different situations. And at the same time, each individual experiences a never ending ebb and flow of thoughts, feelings and perceptions about what's going on. 
However, there's no causal link between the two, despite how it looks, which is why one person may feel really under pressure and somebody else may feel really free, but they're in the same time and place. And, you know, everyone I feel is at their best when they're playing instinctively and loving what they're and loving what they do. And these are natural capacities. You only have to look at children playing to see that instinct and, and enjoyment are incredibly natural. Um, so what we often need to do is strip back the layers of stories and beliefs and kind of the reliance on the intellect and the analysis that, that gets in our way. And I guess that, that they're pretty central tenants to, to performing not just under pressure, but beyond it. And then, you know, how do we apply that to within the context of the game and in particular each individual's game? Mate, that, that's a brilliant introduction. There's loads in there. Um, I, I genuinely don't even know where to start. So um, let's go with, can you talk a little bit more around identity? So obviously that's that's a big thing that, you, that you've just mentioned. What what are you seeing as identity? You know, I guess lots of people would have lots of different ideas around how that looks and how that feels and, and what it is. So what's your kind of take on on? identity as a, as a yeah concept. I think the easiest way to look at it in the first place is to work out um, who you are is not what you have so anything you say that I have that's not fundamentally who you are you know so whether that those are possessions or achievements or your status or your bank balance well they're things you have but they aren't who you are you'd still be that fundamental who you are even without all those things um, and to find out who you are without all those things I think is a is a personal journey and to say you are this or you are that is um i i think is not necessarily my place but just to explore what you're not so you're, you're not your ego um which is just your ego is um your ideas about how the world works and who you think you are and what you think you have to do to prove yourself and if somebody really believes those ideas then that's why we say you've got a big ego um, but we've all got that but is helping people to realize that isn't who they are. And I guess the other bit to identity for me, so it's not what you, it's not what you have, you'll be on that. But then there's also an element of a human being that we don't often talk about, which is kind of the most fundamental element of a human being. And that's just the fact that they're conscious and aware. And they are such simple things to say, and we all know it, that we overlook it. But that is the, if that's what is fundamental, that you are conscious, aware space, and that's where every thought arises and every feeling arises, um, that, that part of you is almost like a base camp. And if you know that, that, that fundamentally, anything that arises within that awareness, again, isn't you. So any thought you have, any feeling you have, isn't you. It's something that arises within that fundamental, fundamental element of you. My experience is that can completely shift your experience of, the game because it shifts your experience of those thoughts and feelings so i guess there's the two sections so it's not to say who you are or who i am it's realizing what you're not and also opening people's ideas up to this fundamental aspect of themselves and perhaps exploring that for themselves a bit i love the what you're not piece and i wonder if in terms of that way of looking at it rather than seeking an identity that maybe doesn't exist in, in, in any kind of real form. If, if you're working out things you're not, it, it kind of just puts you on the alternative path of probably looking inward rather than outward, which I, I really like. Um, I, I, it's interesting, I, I always come back to, and you and I chat with uh, with Sam Jarman obviously quite a lot, but I always say to Sam, that's definitely the, um, 
you know, you want, it's the Tyler Durden piece from Fight Club. You are not your car. You are not your, you know, expensive house. You are not all these things. And, and I actually, that, that, I, I just love that quote because I think it's, it's hugely important that we do recognise how much of that is obviously just material, but also then how much we're changing or ever changing as an individual. And I had a really interesting conversation with a um, sports psychologist this week, actually, called uh, Niels Feddersen. And he was just talking about the, the journey of becoming. And ultimately, we'll never become. It's, it's, it's never finished. We'll arrive at death and we will never have become anything. But that doesn't stop us going through a journey of, of constantly trying to evolve and, and change and discover and all those things. And I think uh, maybe, yeah, as you say, would we be a little bit happier possibly um more content if if we let go of a lot of that stuff it's also just to come back on the other point around the fundamental aspect of you well I, I in my opinion that's where you find happiness so we are conditioned to find happiness outside so through the accumulation of things that you have or don't yet have and i guess it's my experience and i'm not but it's not my place to say how it works for anyone else because i've not been there but it's my experience that that the more I realise that happiness lies within, and the only place I could say that that must be is the thing that never changes. So I will be in different places with different people, um, having different experiences, having different thoughts, different feelings. But actually, that most inner fulfilment lies at the most fundamental area of me, and I can always feel that if you know that's there, and that's the only place you're looking for happiness, then it becomes a, a lot more enjoyable doing stuff, um, and therefore you're that's how you perform beyond potential because you're not constrained by anything outside of you. You're just, because um, you're not needing it. You don't need something to go your way to be happy. You're already happy and then you can play the game. And for me, that's, that's much freeing. So it's a big question. It's a fundamental, but that's why I say it's a fundamental one. And it's not for me to say that that works for anyone else, but it, it's been incredibly freeing for me to not try and prove myself, but just almost be myself. So I'll open this up. So open question in, in by all means, jump in as well. But do we think it's then our responsibility as a coach to try and remove some of those, I would just say they're barriers, you know, we, we talk about probably lots of things just inherently in, in kind of adopted coaching language, and maybe we need to try and strip some of that away. To, to allow people just to be a little bit freer in what they're doing. And, and I'm not talking about less tactics or just play, but but more around not not saying, oh, it's a must-win game. You know, all those kind of cliches that we use as coaches. I wonder what your guys' thoughts around how we'd, we'd operate within a coaching space by kind of pushing a little bit of this. I think I find actually the last eight or nine months with COVID, I really had a chance to sort of, I've been doing this 20 years, and it's the first time I really sort of sat down and try to reflect a little bit and take, take the time to do that, to be honest. And uh, I started, I took a course actually by Tom Bates called The Future Coach. And it's kind of a series of, of um, templates to, to work through and say, define what your mission was, define what your vision was, and kind of reassess what you're doing, right? So I've kind of went through a process where my background is, is more a technical focus. That was, that was my strength as a player. And what I've learned the last eight or nine months is I think I have more impact upon players if I focus a little more on the psychological, psychological part, of the, part of the game. In fact, I think it's probably the, the, the biggest part of the game. And especially when COVID, where we have responsibility as coaches to try to guide players through this on certain times, um, because players went from a situation where they had structure at school, uh, structure in sports, and all of a sudden it's not there any longer, right? So I've spent the last year and nine months basically trying to um, upgrade myself regarding some formal courses regarding sports psychology and also talking to people like Tom 
and getting involved with discussions um, with him re regarding <clears throat> having your own vision, obviously, because I think that your vision is kind of your touch point where you go back to all the time and you, you're going to have ups and downs in your coaching, coaching journey, challenges in life, etc. But if, like Richard said, if you know who you are, that's kind of your base camp to go back to and why you're doing this. I think if you have that in place as a coach, even as a person in life, that's going to give you a, a place where you know you can go back to and and be comfortable and be safe, um, even though you, you may be stretched and challenged regarding other parts of your career or other parts of your life, I think. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's a really key point. Um, I, I guess I guess my follow-up question to that is inherently, and, and it's a generalization, but I would suggest we probably learn more about ourselves as we get older. So if I'm a young coach, just finish playing or, or just want to kind of you know do both carry on playing and coach how what would your guys advice be or how do you think we try and get to a stage where we can be a little bit more comfortable with who we are earlier in our kind of life journey because that that seems to be the it's not a contradiction but that seems to be the biggest challenge for me that I would definitely say in terms of my personal experience I, I probably didn't inverted commas know who I was until I was kind of late 20s but actually all the, the, the seven or eight years of coaching I'd done before that was, I was kind of just, just out there doing it. I didn't, I didn't really know what it was I stood for and, and those other things. And, and there's definitely part of that that's maybe a journey, but I'm, I'm wondering what you guys would think of, of how we can help younger coaches from an educational perspective, develop that understanding. I think uh, my appreciation early on as a coach that you're learning. Uh, because you may go come a player player point of view where you've actually you know, maybe had success as a player, but when you go into coaching, you're kind of starting off, aren't you? Again, so I think the biggest thing is to be open and be open to learning uh, and understand your own journey, and you'll uh, keep learning throughout that journey. You'll keep evolving as a coach. I know when I first started coaching, um, I was more a, a direct coach, trying to direct players in a certain way. Um, I was more hands-on that way. I think I've learned uh, through time and experience that less is more. Uh, keep it simple and basically become more of a facilitator uh, around, um, you know, giving players a love of the ball, a love of the game. It's, it's as basic as that, really, I think, in terms of coaching, not simplifying things a little bit. But I think sometimes we get over technical regarding our coaching and forget what the purpose is. And the purpose is to be a mentor and purpose is to, to help people along their, 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 their own personal journey, which is different than yours because you had a different experience uh, as a player. So and different times, too. Uh, these players today have a more structured um, situation where they can't go out and play in the street. So how does that impact their development versus your own development? Because I remember um, obviously growing up in Belfast and playing in the streets. That's how I learned, learned the game. Lots different than the players I currently coach, which are aged 11 to 16. Uh, I'm also in a different continent in North America versus UK. So how does that impact upon how I coach and how I teach? So it's very important to understand your environment and very, uh, very important to understand what your role is, right? Yeah, I really agree with your point there and about it's about learning and it's about the journey and I think those points are so key and I think it's just emphasizing that from the start but I think a lot of people when they say they're learning it's they're trying to learn to get somewhere and because they think where they get is what will give them what they want which just comes back to those bigger questions about happiness and of course it's great to have aspirations and you know desire to be the best you can be and see how far you can go I don't you know we shouldn't try and um, stop that in any player or coach but um, I guess just trying to help people see that sometimes learning is as rewarding as the outcome so it's kind of you know that you know that cliche quote about 
the journey is the destination. Um, and it's not always going to be easy to tell someone that and they see it. Um, but I think that's an important point to emphasize. And, and ultimately, it's, you, you've got to role model it. You know, if you're working with a younger coach on their journey, what do they see from you about how you interact with people, how you respond to different situations? Because they will start to, to take that on. And if they, they are curious about learning, then hopefully they'll start to, to pick your brains about how you're seeing that or, or why you're doing that. Yeah, oh, no, 100% agree. And it, it, it's funny, isn't it? I'm I was genuinely, when you were talking then, just thinking how many times have I been asked or what's my dream job? And, and I think it, it just sells that narrative, doesn't it? That, that we arrive at an end point and go, oh, I've made it or I'm now successful or I've now done whatever I needed to do. And it, it clearly just isn't the case. And actually, yeah, I, I, I would have always said, I've got no idea what my dream job is. Like, because I don't know who I'll be in a week or a month or a year or 10 years and how how do I know like I just yeah I find that a slightly again maybe that's the type of stuff we need to try and as you say role model strip away not kind of conform to that by and, it, and it's an indirect pressure but as you yeah I guess it, it's just very much if we keep doing those types of things it, it sells a I don't like the term but it sells a mindset that that there is an end point whereas yeah, as we say, we, we, there definitely isn't. But how, how would that actually look for you when you're coaching, Rich? So you're talking about kind of modelling some of the behaviours and, and some of that. Is there anything distinctive you could pick out that um, if, if someone came to watch you in a session, they might see or hear or, or kind of in your planning? Or how does, it, how does it look for you? I think it comes back to understanding the individuals that you're working with. Coaching always does, which is a point you know, I think Ian made earlier. That, so it's not about... What I'm trying to do is about where that player is on their journey and how do I support them. And each group is going to be different and each individual is going to be different. So I guess you'll see a differentiated approach as much as it can be within the constraints that you have. You've got to be pragmatic and not um, you know, idealistic every time you go out and, and, and coach a bunch of kids. But I think the, one of the key things I try and avoid is just talking in language that implies that there's... Um, anything wrong with the, the way you feel. So trying to tell kids that they need to be confident, for example, um, was, you know, if they don't feel confident to me, that's absolutely fine. We're, all we're trying to do is hit a ball and bowl it. So for me, confidence doesn't, yes, it's nice to have, of course, but don't need you to have that. I just need you to be, be yourself and, and run up and bowl a ball. And just so that simplicity, I guess, of message. Um, and similarly on that point, you know, I, I don't, you know, want them to feel that there's um, anything in a situation that is going to cause them a problem internally. So at that point earlier, there's no high pressure situations. doesn't matter who you go up against, where you're, go where you're playing, um, what the scenario is. That is not a pressure situation. It's just a situation that you will, can do your best to adapt and perform towards. Um, and you can play each ball as it comes in that moment. And that's all you can do regardless of whether there's 90,000 people there or, or no people there. So that's play in the moment and adapt. So I guess, like any coach, you, don't, you can't tell. It's not the macro things, it's the, it's the micro things, the direction you just push people gently with the odd point that something you either do say or as often as not something you, you don't say. Do you think you can train people to, to, to develop that level of understanding around pressure? And, and this is something I, I 
probably on a daily basis I'm trying to churn over and work out myself around confidence and pressure and whether they're just social constructs and whether we have to actually accept them as you say all you're doing is is hitting a ball with a bat you know Ben Stokes winning over at, at Headingley in the in the ashes does he feel the pressure or expectation because suddenly there's 60 or 70,000 people watching him um, or is he just in a state of flow and, and enjoying the experience to the extent that it makes no difference and I wonder how much of this is the stories we tell ourselves or how much of this is that as I said earlier the, the narrative of sport and, and actually how when when sport is seemingly constructed like that how do we develop those skills to just go the consequence isn't necessarily real. It's an imagined future. If, again, living in that moment, is there an actual consequence? I think not, not really. whilst we're always trying to push, well, I'm always trying to um, support players towards that natural instinctive in the zone, playing with freedom. You're trying to point people to the fact that that is um, not only natural, but it's them at their best. I think even more important than that is to say, well, however you feel about this is okay. So if you do feel under loads of pressure, that's fine. Just play the ball as best you can with how you feel. Because for me, the bigger problem is that we think it's a problem to feel low in confidence. We think it's a problem to feel under pressure. And it's the resistance to that that actually creates more thinking and kind of drags us further and further away. So however you are is good enough for me. Um, and therefore, I don't need you to not feel pressure or I don't need you to feel a certain way. I only ask that you know that you are absolutely fine and far more capable, far more capable than you think at any moment. Go on, Ian. Were you going to jump in? Yeah, actually, it's a fun little bit different over here in North America because we have a pay-to-play system over here. So a little bit different, I think, back in the UK when I grew up because when I grew up, um, your parents didn't have to fund um, sport and development, right? So basically, in Canada, North America. You've got a situation where the parents are paying for, for development or paying for even just playing in a club team, whether it's cricket or whether it's football or rugby, whatever. So I think and what I find in my journey here is it's put a lot more stress on the sport, uh, a lot more stress on the, on, the, on the young players. So I've kind of spent a lot of my time trying to, A, understand that and also try to help the players a little bit because sometimes the players are coming to a developmental um, sport with um, because their parents are kind of pushing that direction as opposed to the young player having that 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 um, passion themselves right and I find that to be a bit of a challenge in my coaching journey over here and it's a matter of trying to understand that um, and I feel because it's pay to play and it's kind of an expectation of a scholarship pathway potentially there's more pressure on the players and I find that pressure uh, is applied to them quite young uh, six seven eight nine years of age and I have situations where I've, I've had parents at sessions and it's impacted negatively uh, performance young players. So I've spent a lot of my time trying to help players with that kind of situation. Uh, and sometimes it's education with the parents as well to sort of say, you know what, this is their, it's a free time. They go to school all day. It's very structured. Uh, the sporting world is just, that's their time. Let them just play. Let them just enjoy themselves. Let them be themselves and find out who they are. Uh, let them find out what kind of player they are. Let them understand why they're playing. Um, but over here, because it's North America, it's kind of a, expectation that there has to be an end product, that it has to be a situation where you <clears throat> get some kind of contract or get some kind of opportunity. Whereas I grew up just playing the streets with my, my friends. <laughs> so I just enjoyed kicking the ball. So I kind of started that that way. And so I find it's it's one thing I think that can be changed about North American sport, if we could, is just make a play, like make it a situation where it just, it, sports should be enjoyable. 
it should be a, a release from everyday life. It can teach us various things, but it shouldn't be a stress situation where we're trying to go, uh, I make an investment in development and expect a return. And I find that's a very challenging situation over here in North America and something that I try to address on a daily basis, to be honest, and try to sort of say to, to players themselves that not every player is going to play professional. We, we, we all know that. We all know the stats of that. So just enjoy the game. Uh, enjoy the game. And if you end up being a doctor, a lawyer, or a dancer, or whatever you, you're going to end up to be, be that person and just enjoy life and enjoy the sporting part of that and embrace that. And if you're playing in 30 or 40 years, like I, I was, and then I've done my job, really. Uh, I've given you a, a long um long-term passion for the game. And that's kind of what I, I see my, my role being. So. Yeah, I just couldn't agree more with that. I think that's actually spot on. And I guess, you know, I've written a book on this and I've got some strong views, but I think, you know, I have the same challenges, you know, in, in my daily job that, you know, if you've got 300 players on our boys and girls on our pathway, that not every parent and every player is going to see the world the way that I do. And you know, it doesn't matter whether you published a book or not, you know, that's just inevitable. Um, but just trying to engage with them and put those messages across in the most helpful way you can to both the parents and, and the players as often as you can, I think can create a shift, but you're not going to solve the, the view of everybody all, all the time. Um, and you also have to accept that sometimes for some players, that sort of pressure that is self-created or sort of taken on from their parents' perceptions but sometimes it helps them. They don't know any other way. So they've got to go on their own journey with that and, and work out, you know, work that out for themselves. So it's not my place to say, well, you're seeing it completely wrong. It's only my place to say, well, this is the most helpful stuff I've seen. Uh, and just keep trying to share that when, when the opportunity arises. I'm disappointed you don't give, a, I was going to say give away, but you're not going to make any money if you give them, give every parent a copy of your book when they come to the pathway. So maybe I get a discount. Yeah, the discount code. Um, I've, I've touched on this before on the podcast, but I think it, it's a, we probably didn't delve into it too much. Do you think a lot of this, uh, once you be, get into a pathway, the, the language around pathway becomes part of the issue? Again, go, go back to our earlier conversation around there's an end point. To my mind, a pathway would suggest that you're going to arrive somewhere when you get there. And, and I, I don't know what else you'd call a programme, whether it's an opportunity programme or something, but I, I wonder whether actually clubs or, or, you know, institutions, whoever could phrase this differently and whether that would change a little bit of the narrative and possibly reduce some of that pressure because I've not got kids. I don't know what it's like, but I can definitely recognise that, oh, oh, you know, my son, my daughter, oh, they're on a pathway. Well, where does that lead? Like everything around that just just kind of reinforces those messages of arrival. I've, how often do we hear the term I've made it or they've made it or is someone going to make it? Like, I wonder whether there's just a lot more work to be done in that space to try and just be a little bit more open rather than that kind of very narrow view of that there is a definitive end. Yeah, I mean, we've wrestled with this one ourselves because I agree with your position there um, but then also what do you call it because also one of the things we are trying to do is we are trying to produce professional cricketers um, so it's not about making it or you know it's not about that's going to be the be all and the end all and if you don't make it then you know it's a problem actually we want you know it's Ian's point we want everyone to have a great experience of the game wherever that is and play the game for as long as possible but part of what we do and part of why we exist is to produce professional cricketers because if, if, you know, otherwise it's about 
um, otherwise we just need the clubs. So part of having a county programme is to take the better players, provide them the best v best um, experiences, good coaching and support, and see how far they can go. And so, yeah, if there's a better word than pathway, I've yet to hear it, so we're stuck with it. But I think what's more important is just your the way you position it, the way you message it. You can you can take the word pathway and you can take it turn it all about being a pro, or you can say, well, one outcome is about being a pro, but actually our ethos is this, and there's a variety of outcomes, and we're we're keen to support players through all these different avenues, one of which is being a pro. Yeah, a good point, Richie. I'm in some situation where I really I work with Fleetwood Town in England, so I'm trying to develop some players for them. Same situation as yourself, where I'm trying to develop those higher level players. And yeah, it's it's a I wrestle with the term as well, pathway. But I think it's it's just part of the nature of the beast. I, I am trying to, to find the better players. I am trying to develop them like yourself uh, to, towards higher levels. The way I've positioned it really is um, we're trying to give you uh, the same experiences you would have over in Fleetwood, for example, regarding the train level of training, regarding the level of support you have um, from a coaching point of view. So if, if that leads to opportunity over there, great. If it doesn't, then you've got a skill set that hopefully you can apply to uh, a U.S. college situation, uh, playing in Canada, whatever. But obviously we want to leave my program uh, a, a better person and be a better player. I think that's kind of what we, we're, we're trying, to, trying to sort of frame it as. But yeah, definitely a good point, Phil, regarding, regarding the, the terminology. Um, but I think there is this thing in sport regarding progression, right? So there is a, this, this, this kind of um, understand that if you work at something, you're going to progress. And I think Pathways trying to, I guess, confirm that. There is something, part of the problem in Canada with, with soccer, football, is there is no pathway to professional sport over here in, in terms of football. So we're trying to provide that kind of link to the UK through that. So that's kind of what we use the terminology. Um, and yeah, I can't really think of a, a different word to be honest, but definitely a good point you, you've made though. You have to start looking heavily through the thesaurus and just see see what I can find that might work. But yeah, I, I don't know. As I say, it, yeah, is it is it just convenient? Does it actually convey what we want? I, I'm not sure, but it's yeah, maybe one we'll we'll just keep wrestling with. So um, I'm conscious of time. So Ian, we will shift over to you. So um, do you want to talk us through what uh, what content you were looking at this week? Yeah, definitely. So like I mentioned, the last uh, six or seven months, I've tried to look at a little more sports psychology uh, into learning more about for myself and how I can help my players a little better with that situation. So yeah, I've done some for formal qualifications with that NLP and uh, currently taking a certificate in sports psychology from Barca Innovation Hub. I've also reached out to some people like Tom Bates, for example, in the UK, uh, renowned sports psychologist. And he had actually an interesting seminar last week, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, so we had a, a guy called Jason Fox on the show, uh, ex-Special uh, Forces. And Jason's actually wrote a book um, about his experiences, um, Life Under Fire. And what I find interesting about is, 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 is he's talking about his life in the military was the kind of four pillars he had when he was there. Okay. And he had obviously a, a long career in the Special Forces. And uh, he, he kind of built his built his, his career around these four pillars, which is one was courage. Uh, don't be afraid of the unknown. Uh, two was determination. Keep going when challenged. Um, he actually went in a situation where he had to apply for a special forces job. They had 350 people at the start. They were left eight at the end. So obviously he was one of the ones that had determination to keep going, get through that situation, that process. This is an interesting one on selfishness. Okay. He said they had an ethos there where everybody had everyone else's back. So if everyone had everyone else's back, didn't have to worry about yourself because everyone would take care of you. Okay. I thought that was an interesting concept that 
maybe we can bring more into the sporting world. Um, like I said, I focus on individual development uh, as a coach. Maybe I can bring that ethos in more if we look after each other as opposed to kind of focus on the individual and that way we're all getting better. That was one of my takeaways from that. The last one was actually interesting too, was cheerfulness, a positive mindset under pressure, okay? And a prime example of that is this year, obviously with the COVID situation, our players lost their entire outdoor season, playing season. They've lost pretty well, I think, their indoor season as well. Um, they went from, like I said, a, a structure where they had structured schools, structure with my program, structure with their club teams, went into a situation where full lockdown did nothing, right? So we kind of, um, I was just talking to some parents, talking to some players, and what I did with that was I tried to give them a little bit of structure. Uh, so we set up some Zoom calls. I sent out initially all this information regarding and do this and do that. And I quickly realized that the players were just overwhelmed by this. I had no structure to it. So I had to kind of break into small chunks and give some structure to it, like recommend have breakfast at nine and 10, as opposed to 12, <laughs> you know, uh, train a little bit in the morning, have your lunch, do your schoolwork, they're working online and kind of having a bit of a process in place. But one of the things that I've came across um, and Jason mentions a lot was having a flexible mindset. I think we came from a very structured world, like I mentioned, and I think I've, I've seen players actually develop this quite a lot during the last couple of months is being flexible. I just mentioned the fact I'm still training outdoors in the snow. That never happened before. We were always indoors October 1st in, you know, pristine uh, indoor facilities and, and uh, bubbles that, and turf, that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden we're clearing off snow and trying to work on smaller spaces and the players are arriving at sessions. I'm arriving at session myself. I'm not sure what I'm going to be faced with in terms of space I have or, or, or conditions. And a prime example is the other night when I arrived and we thought we had two fields. We had one field. So, my whole session plan had to change in a, in a dime. Um, and also the players' mindset had to change as well. So I find that a big learning curve for them has been, has been that. I think the players have actually embraced the changes. And I would say that's been the biggest change I've saw my young athletes the last, last couple of months. And one of the benefits of COVID. Uh, and also another benefit has been uh, a love of the ball because players are not faced a situation where they've got a small basement, they've got a garage, they've got a, maybe a living room. Um, so that's all they've got in terms of space and what can you do regarding training? Well, it comes down to the ball. That's basically it. So I find that the biggest, the biggest change the last, last six or seven months. I'm just looking back at what, what, what stuff that Jason said was, you know, flexible mindset. I think young people have had to have a, a flexible mindset, um, the last couple of months. I think they've done very well with it. So maybe we underestimated them regarding what they were capable of until they were faced in that situation. Right. So one example is actually Jason gave was he had a special forces um, uh, project. He had to go in and get some other situation. So they had like this intense 12 hours of planning on the whiteboards, the whole bit. They found out two minutes before the operation started that the person that moved location. So everything was at the window regarding their planning. They literally had to feel confident with people around themselves, the team to go in and, and do the work basically. So again, that goes back to, to sport as well. How can it be applied to sport where we have changing circumstances all the time? So in cricket, rugby and football, things do change. For example, coaches can change. Um, you may be transferred a different program. You may change your school, you may change your club, whatever. So you always have these changing circumstances happening. So I think one of the things we can help our players with more is helping them through the situations a little bit. Uh, and maybe more mindful of how we can help them, uh, what we can do to help them a little bit. So I've kind of just mentioned to players, for example, that we normally have a, a fixed schedule, like I mentioned, but. I've said to them, I go, because of COVID, this will change, right? Just get, understand the fact that we're in a changing environment, okay? And what is, what will stay constant is the fact that you can control 
how you behave in that environment. You can control about you know, being the session on time, being prepared for the session still. The sessions may change in terms of content. They may change regarding location, but you can take control yourself of how you can prepare, um, how you can be at that session, how you, your performance can be at that session. And that will be irrespective of what's happening around you regarding COVID or, or non-COVID, irrespective of the fact you can't play league games. Okay, there's no reason why you can't get better as a player during this, this period. I'll try to flip it a little bit as well and say that this is giving you guys more, more time to spend time in the ball, more time to um, spend additional training at home. I think that's a concept they've all bought into now, whereas before they kind of went to their club team, they kidding myself for additional work and that was it. And they kind of thought, well, I'm doing my bit. I'm, I'm taking additional training with Ian, so I'm doing extra hours. Whereas I'm trying to get a concept across that uh, you can do even more by yourself at home. And it's really what players do away from this structure environment will determine how, how well they, they, how far they go in the game, in my opinion. So the players I've kind of came across in the past, and we've actually, one of our players ended up, uh, he's currently playing for Wolves U23s. He's a player and he said, Ian, listen, I went, I came home with your session. I went to the back garden, spent two hours with the ball in the back garden. He goes, no one told me to do that. You didn't tell me to do it. My parents didn't tell me to do it because I had a love of the game, passion for the game. I think that's the, the, the part that kind of, the X factor, if you will, the thing that determines how far players go. And I think someone like that too does have a flexible mindset regarding finding ways to train, ways to get better um, that are above and beyond what the structure is. If that makes any sense. So kind of, yes, I kind of find it really interesting to that, that world. I'm uh, trying to think back to how I can take some of those pillars uh, and I can apply them to my own coaching practice and how I can help our players. But definitely I've seen a situation where people have been more flexible. Um, I, I like the concept too, about being unselfish. I think we get caught up in this thing uh, we just talked about already regarding our own careers or own goals, whereas we help each other out uh, as a collective, maybe that's the best way forward. You know, and I think that's, that was one of my key takeaways from last week. I love that. I think there's loads in there, which is fantastic. I, I've always been, yeah, I think the special forces and, and certainly the, just the forces in general, the, the, the way they will always have incredibly clear principles. And I definitely think that's probably something we can use, utilize in sport more is, you know, as you say, that actually they, they will plan to the nth degree, but they're flexible enough to change that plan in two minutes notice or whatever it was they got. So actually, would, would we be in a similar position? Would we have planned in as much detail? Because again, it, I mean, they're in an incredibly fluid and dynamic environment and you can say they're different, but ultimately you base, they base their decision-making off the information they have at the time. They formulate a plan. They, they work to execute that plan and, and then they just adapt because they're so highly trained and able to adapt. And I wonder whether it's, it's those type of skills that we could, we could probably transfer across a little bit more rather than being stuck in, you know, the amount of conversations I've had with players around, you know, are that, well, we know what plan A is, but what's plan B? Well, that, that's the skill that, that, that just highlights to me. We've got to do a lot more work on your ability as a player to understand how to, how to adapt and self-organize in the moment, because no one else is going to be out there on, on the field or on the pitch or whatever with you doing that. So yeah, that's very, very interesting. I think courage is a really interesting one. And I'd, I'd be interested to get both of your thoughts from this from a psych perspective. So the guys on um, 80% Mental podcast talked about this. And I think the title of the podcast was Is Confidence Overrated? Which I just thought was brilliant because I think it's, a, it's just a great question to ask. And um, Pete, who's one of the hosts, just came back with his kind of summary was he would replace the term confidence with courage. 
and I just I loved that. I just thought actually, as as Rich you touched on earlier, it, it doesn't really matter what your level of confidence is, if you can be courageous. Whether you, if you've got a high level of confidence, then then being courageous might be a little bit easier. If your confidence is low, it doesn't matter. You can still just be courageous in going out there and, and doing what you wanted to do. And whether you guys agree with something like that, whether that's something you you would talk about or kind of work with um, indirectly, what are your thoughts? I mean, I agree with the, the concept. I guess it's the detail behind it. So when, we, when, when you say courage, what do you mean? Which is why I, you know, I stopped saying the word pressure years ago because that everyone means something different when they say that word. So just say what you actually mean. And I think a lot of the time when we say the word courage, what we're, what we're really referring to is perhaps um, getting over the uncomfortable feelings that we've got. Um, so we're kind of learning to be comfortable feeling uncomfortable. And I think that that's hugely important because you're not going to feel comfortable all the time. Uh, you're not going to feel good all the time and you don't need to. Um, and you, if you trust your instincts and you know that whatever happens, whether you win or lose, um, you're going to be okay. And it might be slightly different in an SAS scenario, but it's definitely not in a sporting one. Um, in the SAS scenario, I think you have to ask, it's, it's a deeper question, what does okay really mean? But I think in a sporting one, you know you're always going to be okay. Um, and therefore, you're kind of free to perform from where you are. So, yeah, for me, I wouldn't use courage. I'd say let's, you know, let's get comfortable or let's get used to feeling uncomfortable and being okay with it and going past it. Um, because sometimes when we use the words courage, it implies that this situation is going to make you feel fearful or nervous or whatever. Well, in, it, there's no guarantee of that because there's no causal link between, between the two. So that's just whether we feel um, uncomfortable or not, let's just go and play our best. Let's just try and simplify that down. And that's the same, you know, for in any, in any environment, if you feel if you feel nervous, you feel anxious, that's not a problem. Let's, let's move from where we are. And I think what the, when I see that, you know, those SES programs, what I, what I think they do so well is they push people past their preconceived limits. You know, how many times do you see, you know, people think I can't go any further. I can't do this anymore. And they can. And I think you can do that, um, in those sort of experiences. And I think we all do that through life and that's part of the journey. But I think you can also do that in a much more uh, introspective way by realizing how all your, all your thoughts and feelings are just transient illusions. You know, they're not fixed realities. They just paint a picture for the moment that they're there in your consciousness and then they're gone. So if I stop believing the illusions that appear to me in, the, in, in my mind, then I can just proceed, whether that illusion is an uncomfortable illusion or it's a uncomfortable or comfortable. Let's just, let's move in the direction we're trying to go. I definitely like that, Rich. I like the part about trying to get players to be more uh, comfortable, being uncomfortable. I think it's one of the things I've talked about quite a lot with my players saying, if you're in a learning process and I go, you should come to my sessions and be challenged every session. You should feel uncomfortable uh, during my sessions because if you're not, and within your in yourself, then it's quite easy for you. You're not really developing. So, trying to get players to understand that it's normal to be uncomfortable. You know, learning learning process, and it's okay. It's okay if you can't do a hundred keep ups day one. And that's okay because I want you to be challenge yourself and, and and be 
be in situations where even during the practice, I said, I'll give you a framework regarding what I'm asking you to do, obviously, but if you're not getting challenged in that, I have no problem. I, I encourage you to actually be more creative with that yourself and, and challenge yourself a little more. I've got situations where in my Zoom calls, for example, some of the players will grab a tennis ball and do the, the juggles on a tennis ball as opposed to a, a real ball because they're trying to challenge themselves a little bit more, right, than some younger players. I think it's a good thing, but I think it's something that's missed quite a lot in coaching and development, the fact that it's okay to be uncomfortable. I think um, everybody wants to sort of feel comfortable, say, I can do 100 juggles, no worries, but you have to kind of fight through that process. You've got to kind of aim for that and then try to achieve it, and you will feel uncomfortable. So I think it's an excellent point that um, maybe replace courage with that. Uh, are, you, are you comfortable being uncomfortable? Um, whether it's games, whether it's training, or whether it's your own life, uh, are you, do you have the confidence yourself to say, I can, I can, I've got the skill set to kind of battle through this a little bit, right? So I think that's part of what we have to get across to our players. Yeah, I mean, it's the same on a, on a working week. You know, if I wake up on Monday, I think, well, I'd love an easy week this week, but yeah, how am I going to be better at my job? It's going to be coming up against some challenges and experiencing a bit of discomfort and learning how to do things better. So, you know, sometimes there's a lot of um, blessings in disguise, that aren't there? And I think we've got to just get players seeing that from the outset, that the only way they're going to grow is that is put, you know, going through that comfort zone and helping them to see that the comfort zone is, is something we create in our own minds of what I'm, what I want to do and what I don't want to do. And if we stop worrying so much about our preferences and, and just keep, you know, kind of working to keep going on the journey of where we're trying to go to, whether we're comfortable or not, let's just keep, let's just keep going and see what happens. I think, you know, it's about our players, but it's also about, it's about us being prepared to feel discomfort, um, discomfort even though no one's going to choose it, but we've got to, we've got to see the value in it. I'd be interested in where that self-limiting behaviour actually comes from. Is, is that something from the world around us and people, you know, start saying, oh, you can or you can't do this? Or is that something we just kind of grow into? Because, uh, like, kids aren't particularly fearful, are they? Like, I, maybe it's our, our learning of consequence. I'm not sure that, you know, oh, I'm, I'm going to jump off this. Well, hold on. That's like eight foot high. No, that's not a great idea. So do, do we start putting things in young people's heads around stuff that creates a comfort zone do we start informing that they can or can't do something or actually could you know if we're, co if we're coaching or working with with younger kids is that something we need to be more conscious of of actually trying to get them to expand a little bit more i'd be interested in whether that's a nature or nurture thing at some stage would we automatically develop that irrespective of the world around us or, or it is, is it again another kind of social construct or social limit that we put on on the people we engage with I find over North America, I think it's probably similar to back in the UK right now, we're in the generational thing. So <clears throat> obviously, um, I grew up in Belfast, so a little different environment to grow up in. But over here, it seems to be very much where the parents are trying to uh, have, work, work with their ch children in the sense that they want them to avoid disappointment. They want them to avoid being challenged a little bit. They want them to avoid feeling uncomfortable. I think it's a big part of sport. I think it's a big part of development as a person that you have to go through those, those challenges. And if you can come out in a positive sense, it gives you a lot, lot more confidence. But I feel that what's happening over here um, and maybe across the world really is parents are trying to take away those challenges sort of understand what challenges are ahead and try to obviously remove the barriers a little bit for the players and, and young people without giving them the opportunity to kind of go through themselves. 
and I think it's really it's it's too bad if the the child because I think the child it's good for them to try to come across a barrier and come across a situation where they have to kind of extend themselves a little bit to overcome something. And I think it goes back to even stuff I hear about in education where everyone gets an A these days, right? So there's no real earning of of, of merit sometimes. And I think it's it's a it's a it's a changing changing world. I, I get I get that, but I sort of see an opportunity there to to if we can get educate parents around the fact that that it's okay for the players to face uh, adversity, whether it's being dropped by a coach, whether it's not getting enough playing time, whatever. In North America, that happens. Typically, young players leave the club and go somewhere else. They haven't kind of battled through that where, okay, I'll come back and show the coach. I'll be better. I'll go learn and come back. The old Michael Jordan story where he, he was, didn't make his high school team, but his mom said to him, well, just go go practice, right? Which he did. So I think, <clears throat> I think we're missing that part in, in society a little bit. And it's, it's unfortunate. I think we're uh in some cases developing players um that are not being challenged enough in, in some cases yeah i mean i completely agree and i guess you know there's a lot of research out there that says a really good coaching environment is one that's high challenge high support isn't it so how do we as coaches create that environment it's both you know you can't just challenge players endlessly and not and not be there as a as a human being to connect with them when they struggle or um or to help guide them through some of those challenges with you know whether it's technical information or ta tactical but i think just your point there fell around you know kids going to jump off something and saying you can't do that um you know i think i think that's often very good parenting but i think the, the key difference is are you protecting yourself physically like in that environment or are you trying to protect your sense of self because a lot of where we avoid challenge is where we don't want to look bad. So we're not in, in actual physical danger, but we don't want people to think that we're a failure or we don't want to feel like a failure or we don't, we're trying to give a certain perception of ourselves. And therefore we're not going to embrace that challenge because if I, if I doesn't go well, then that sense of identity that I have is, is threatened and is diminished. So that's where, you know, it's very hard to, to do that with young kids, but I think that's where it's important to explore and understand the the concepts that those players have about their sense of identity. So it doesn't have to be deep philosophical, spiritual discussions, but to get them to see that they are they are avoiding certain things because of a thought that they have in their mind about how it's going to make them look. And if that thought wasn't there or they didn't believe it, then they would embrace that challenge. Um, because, you know, how often do we see kids saying, you know, they fail and say, oh, I didn't care anyway. Well, the fact they're making excuses, yes, they do. But what they're trying to do is protect the bit, the bit themselves, you know, from, from being full out and sort of, um, yeah, protect that sense of self that doesn't want to be shown up as, as a failure. So if I don't care, then I can't be seen to be a failure. And it's all just happening in our own minds, this creation of this, this self-image and this protection of it which ultimately is hold, holding us back. So I don't think you can get in too deep, but I think you can you can explain that dynamic. And I guess, you know, in the book I've written, I've tried to do that in a way that I think, you know, with a 15-year-old, if they picked it up, they would they would get it without it having to be some sort of deep, you know, deep discussion. Uh, yeah, I, I love that point. I think there's definitely some questions you can ask around. I remember having a conversation with a couple of players saying, you know, okay, they were saying, oh, it's a really important game coming up. And I said, well, how would you play that game if pressure didn't exist? And, and just those kind of thought experiments to go, well, you don't, you don't have to believe it. 
Like, you know, no one, yes, the, everyone else in society is kind of going, well, this is what we all do. But you don't, even just the, the thought process of that might just shift you a little bit further on that journey to, to understand that you have got that freedom. And, and ultimately it came down to, as you say, pr protecting that self-image or being aware of that consequence or that kind of social pressure. They didn't want to let somebody down or, or something like that. And it's, yeah, it's fascinating just how those questions, I think if you ask, if you find, a, you know, some good questions like that, just to stimulate even in kids i'd have that conversation with my niece and my nephew and you know when they're not jumping off stuff that's too high um but and I, i'll probably let them probably that's probably a big insight into what kind of uncle i am which is which i don't know if that's good or bad but yeah they enjoy it so yeah and i think just just trying to kind of pose pose some of that stuff because as you say it's, it's just a slightly alternative take that that expands that thinking i guess which is yeah which is cool. Ian, I'm, I'm just going to jump back to you for a second. I, I really like the term that you've used a couple of times around the love of the ball. What do you see? Do you think that's something you can help develop? Is that you kind of giving some some of the players some ideas around developing that? Is Love's obviously a really big statement, which I think is fantastic. It's probably not something you can coach someone's going to develop that themselves so i'm interested in what your kind of process is in supporting the players through yeah, i think that. that came to your fore regarding code because all of a sudden like i said we went to a situation where we're on the field to zoom calls that kind of stuff <clears throat> i was able to go out as well and get the players um home training apps as well so we kind of um provide them with that where they're encouraged to go out and spend time themselves we have certain challenges that skill challenges that kind of stuff and I kind of give them a little bit of a sense of community as well, because obviously they were in their houses, they couldn't see their friends. Um, so really the only socialization they had was through our, our group, as, as a Zoom group kind of thing. So I think the biggest thing I was trying to do was, was set challenges, um, uh, get them to understand how much they can improve as a player by spending time with the ball. Um, and because we had even first, first lockdown was back in March, so our weather wasn't great either. So we couldn't go outside as much either. So. They had, like I said, limited space. Some people were actually using their living rooms or clearing off the furniture to the Zoom calls in there, which I thought was great. Some players actually cleared the garage out, which was fantastic. Some were on their driveway, some were a little bit braver on outside. But um, what I saw was different environments. They all had kind of been creative with that and all had spent time on the ball. And I think it became almost an exercise where because they had some structure, they knew they were on a call, say on a Thursday, they would go away and do some extra work knowing the fact to be on, on the Zoom call on Thursday. And uh, I try to highlight some of the players and what they, what they were doing and some of the challenges. I think challenger, a little a skills challenges is a great way to get kids involved. They love that, right? And I was trying to get them to understand the fact that it's not so much about you against an our player, but it's kind of almost your, your golf score, right? So if you can do five this week and do six next week, also gives them a sense of accomplishment, right? So I think my job has become more facilitation of understanding that the way you develop as a player is this, you've got your team, your team training, you've got my additional training, but what can you do at home? How can you, how can you maximize your time at home? So just trying to give them ideas really in terms of what you can do. So through my Zoom, Zoom uh, calls, you've got five by five, or five yard space. What can you do? And a lot of kids hadn't really thought about that. So I think my, my role became, here's like 45 different ways to utilize that space kind of thing. I've got like, I've been running with five or six sessions uh, a week really uh, with no contact because of COVID. So my whole coaching practice has changed and I've had to think outside the box a little bit and go, okay, what would I do? Um, so I think part of it too is my passion for that because I, as a player, I spent a lot of time myself just, just, just practicing. I love that. Even today, if I'm upset about science, go to the field with a ball, I feel happy. Not. So 
I try and get that message across to players that just it's you and the ball, go and enjoy it kind of thing. Whether it's a tennis ball against the wall or keep set keep ups or whatever. So I think part of it was getting that concept of passion across them, regarding passion for the game. But I think that because the, the only option they had was to spend time with the ball, I think it it, it actually naturally encouraged them a little bit more. Um, and also they're coming to sessions a little more confident in the ball. They can get their head up a little more. I'm starting to see the progress of that. And I'm seeing massive progress regarding the technical ability of the players, right? It's unfortunate they can't have the experience right now of going in and playing out to a game. But um, like I tell them, I go, I've kind of tried to flip it a little bit and say, this is a perfect time for you guys to really develop yourselves, really. Uh, and also understand what you can do away from the field as opposed to what you need from a structured environment. So a lot of things really, but I guess my biggest um, thing I can give them is really is, is the content, try to understand what you can do in that small amount of space and a small amount of time and how you can maximize your time and just being creative for that. And we actually do a little bit of a skill discovery part as well as part of the Zoom session. I said, look, like, next minute is yours. You go off and pick one skill and go off and just do it and try to master it uh, and spend time by yourself. That's something that they really haven't done a lot of uh, where someone said to them, just get a ball and just go play with it. But it's kind of, it's kind of um, forcing them in the sense of what can you do? What, what's, what's a move you want to work on? So they have got to develop their own content a little bit then as well, which is good. But I guess it's just ownership. It's really getting to see the benefits of ownership, taking, taking ownership of the development, taking ownership of the life in, in, in general regarding you've got the situation called COVID. You've all this time. How can you maximize your time during COVID? How can you get your schoolwork done? How can you get your sports stuff done? How can you spend time with your family? All those things. Oh, I, love, I love that. I think that's great. As you say, just just kind of starting, setting that fire underneath them, just by giving them a few options and a few challenges and and a bit of yeah, bit of guided discovery, I guess, which is fantastic. So wonderful, guys. I'm going to wrap it up there, but I I will come back to you for uh, any suggestions of other content that you would say people would should uh, go and have a look at. Rich, have you got anything that you'd um, you'd suggest? Well, my, my favorite coaching book is uh, Phil Jackson's uh, Eleven Rings: The The Soul of Success. Um, the NBA coach, but I imagine lots of people may may already read that one because there's obviously big news of the um, the Netflix um, series about Ch um, Chicago Bulls over the summer. So um, my second one will be um, the Barefoot Coach by Paddy Upton, very similar, but a, a cricket coach from South Africa who's worked with um, a number of teams that have, have won the 2020 leagues around the world. So and the, and the World Cup with India. So yeah, de definitely give the Barefoot um, Coach a read. So what was the name of that one? The Barefoot Coach. Barefoot Coach. Love that. Check that out. Thank you very much. Ian, what about you? What are you going to suggest? Yeah, we're trying to actually point my players towards some high-performance podcasts. Uh, Jake Humphreys has a, a series. Um, so he's had, um, for example, Stephen Gerrard on there, uh, some top players. Just getting to understand what it requires to be a top, top performer. So I've been trying to direct players towards that, that avenue with that. Fantastic. Yeah, I'd 100%. We've, we've talked about a couple on here. They are um, they're seriously good. So great suggestion. Um, gents, thank you very much for your time. This has been uh, hugely enlightful for me. Absolutely wonderful. So I'm going to round up the roundup. Uh, we hope the listeners found it useful. Thank you again to my guests for their excellent insight. Links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. Please subscribe, like and share. Once again, I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well. 